This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Lung Science Podcast. My name is Eric Morell, and I'm an acting instructor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington. With me to discuss leveraging biomarkers to understand disease mechanisms is Dr. Angela Rogers, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Rogers uses a variety of genomic, metabolomic, and other molecular techniques to help identify novel ARDS pathobiology. All right, Angela, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think we'll just jump right in. Many physicians think of biomarkers in the context of cardiovascular disease, and I'm thinking of things like troponin or in cancer with many of their you know, prognostic biomarkers, but, but less so in pulmonary and critical care medicine. I'll start by asking you to describe what is biomarker research to you? Uh, and the follow-up to that is what do you think should be the main goals for biomarker research specifically in pulmonary and critical care medicine? Sure, thanks so much for having me, Eric. It's an honor to be here and to get to talk to my colleagues uh, from ATS. So I agree with you that, um, so I am an ARDS researcher. I have um, been in the field of pulmonary critical care medicine for 15 years now. And my focus like yours is on ARDS. Um, and I would say that when you look over the last 15 years that I've been in the field, you've seen marked improvements in certain diseases like cancer, I think is the great example, right? Where uh, things that used to be a death sentence now can be subphenotyped uh, into subsections of the disease that respond to a targeted therapy. And so you see diseases that used to be a death sentence go to uh, now being quite treatable and even curable. And I, in, the in the same, vein in pulmonary critical care we have not been as successful and when you look at ARDS those of us that study the field know that while there have been substantial improvements in, in the mortality of our patients I think largely because of improvements in um, the way we ventilate uh, patients things like hand hygiene are markedly improved so patients do do better than they used to do 15 years ago there's not a single uh, therapeutic regimen that works and no, no drug therapy for ARDS that we have. And I would say that part of that is that we really lump the whole disease together as one syndrome that 25% of patients in the ICU meet. I think when you're a clinician at the bedside, you look at patients and you see that they, they aren't all the same. You know, some of them meet the ARDS definition, but you will probably do fine no matter what we do. Others are really, really sick and probably won't do fine no matter what we do. Um, and, and so thinking about biomarkers as a way to tease out the important subsets of disease that could be targeted then for therapies is I think what makes the field so compelling. Well, I'll kind of put you on the spot there, Angela. Um, should we maybe be thinking about changing, at least in ARDS, the Berlin definition or how we're describing this syndrome and thinking about incorporating certain molecular or genomic or whatever type signatures into that definition? Um, I think eventually that we'll get there, Eric, uh, but not right now. I think the Berlin definition has its role. I think it's very clear, right, that if someone meets the ARDS definition, they do benefit from having lung protective ventilation strategies with low tidal volumes. So it's actually very important to treat everyone, you know, with the head of the bed elevated at 30 degrees. The standard of care that we have for all of ARDS, I think really matters and is why we've made improvements in mortality. But yes, I think eventually what we're gonna find is that some 
subphenotypes of the disease are very inflamed and, and could be targeted by therapies. Others might have um, uh, differences in their macrophage activation syndrome, for example, and, and drugs that have failed in everyone, even things like surfactant, right, may actually be very useful for a subset of, of patients if only we could find them. And I would say that over the past five years, some of the most exciting work in, uh, in ARDS right now is work such as Carolyn Calfee's work in latent class analysis, things like um, Antoine R.A. from Newell Myers group are things that could potentially be targeted if we can in a timely fashion identify the right patients who could benefit. Yeah, I agree. Um, <clears throat> I guess you're talking about uh, sort of leveraging existing data sets and, and a lot of the work that's come out in critical care in the past you know, five years has, has really leveraged uh, Sort of existing data that was collected during ARDSnet trials and, and over the past 10 years. Um, uh, and it sounds like you should, we should definitely be continuing to go down that route. You know, even though it's retrospective and observational data, it seems like a valuable resource. Um, what types of data mining approaches do you think we should be focused on when we, when we, when we do those types of analyses? Um, that's a great question. Yes, for sure, we have to leverage large data sets. I think one of the reasons that we're behind in, in critical care is when you think about it, um, in contrast to most diseases that are studied, critical care is really a gene by environment interaction. So it's like even if you have a genome that's chock full of ARDS risk factors, if you never get pancreatitis, then you never get ARDS, you know, so you are naturally lumped into the control. And so you know, it's really because you have to have a hit in addition to whatever genetic risk factors you have. Um, it's, it's a very difficult disease to study, but on the flip side, it's, you know, it's how a, a tremendous number of people die. And so we, it, it's, it's very compelling to figure, to get to the root causes of our diseases. Yeah, I agree. That's a, a definite, uh, you know, it's a common disease, has common risk factors, and so that can be very difficult. Um, one of the things that's happened, and, and, and what I'm really eager to ask your opinion on, is in the past, you know, five to ten years, there's been major technologic advances that have allowed us uh, to measure hundreds and even thousands of molecular biomarkers right. uh, very accurately and cost-effectively. And this has, obviously, pluses, but also minuses. There's often this perceived tension between, you know, quote-unquote fishing and less pejorative or hypothesis um, uh, uh, generating analyses versus hypothesis-driven analyses. And I guess many of us in this field struggle with um, how to design experiments to best leverage these technologies and avoid simply just measuring a bunch of epiphenomenon. Can you talk about specifically how to design biomarker studies in, in 2020 when we have these capabilities? Yes, you know, I, I think both are important. I think that really to move the field forward, we're going to need to be open to anything we can do to figure out clinically important subphenotypes of disease, and also at the same time to, to understand the biology better. So I think actually that while you're right, we often think of it as this dichotomous thing as 
uh, uh, hypothesis-driven versus fishing expedition, anything goes. What, what you see is that a lot of what actually shows up in these genomic screens, like Nula Meyer's uh, ANG2 and ANG1 work, like the latent class analysis work that was open to a lot of different biomarkers, but what actually shows up to matter is things like IL-6, ILA, and TNF receptor 1. Again, th those weren't from a genomic screen, but what you see is what's driving those phenotypes actually is important under bi underlying biology that can actually inform the clinical trial that will eventually target those patients, right? So I think that it's true, we should be open to, to anything. And I think some one of the wonderful things about genomics is that you realize that, that it leads you to whole pathways like ORMDL3 and asthma, right? That never would have been hypothesized and, um, and then followed up, but it test gives you the sense, oh, maybe lipid biomarkers are important it's, uh, or lipid mediators are important in the biology of that disease and sends you down a whole new path. I think when you look at, while we think about it as dichotomous, in the end, you can see that when people look at the list of genes that seem to matter, they hone in on the ones that you know, could suggest important new biology. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point, Angela. Um, you know, uh, we had a recent uh, podcast uh, with Blanca Himes and, and, and much of the discussion centered around, um, you know, with these common diseases, how to modulate, you know, how far can we reduce things, right? So there's all these network analyses with genomic data and metabolomic data, which show, <clears throat> you know, large sets moving in certain directions. Um, but sometimes it's very difficult to translate those into, into drug developments, where oftentimes a drug company will be looking for a single hit and a single molecule to, to block or to augment. Um, are, are there ways that you can think about translating some of these discoveries that we've made into, into actual therapies? Um, and I'm thinking of sort of broadly modulating the immune system or the, you know, the vascular environment. Um, are these really, these types of discoveries really should be centered on trying to understand pathophysiology um, to sort of take it to the next, you know, take it to the next step down the road? Right, right. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry that I keep answering with the same answer, but that I, I do think that both, you need both. Um, you know, I think if we don't understand the biology, then it's, you know, incredibly hard to target. It's true that with a critically ill patient, the idea that a single molecule, that targeting one thing uh, will be the answer and stop, you know, this cascade of events that's led to the critically ill patient in front of you seems really hard to believe. On the flip side, using multi-omic data where you see that you know, gene expression and metabolomics and proteomics are all showing you that this, this pathway really matters. I think to me, that's one of the compelling uses for using big data. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I think uh, as we kind of end this podcast, we, we always try to um, focus on our you know, uh, trainees and our junior investigators who are specifically interested in looking at projects in biomarker and trans translational research. Um, what specific questions do you think um, those people should be asking at, at this point in their career? What specific training aims should they have uh, mm -hmm. when looking at this field? Sure. Um, I guess my advice to trainees would be to ask a question uh, that you care about the answer for. So, you know, I think with biomarkers, we're learning, you know, I, there's the potential, right, to really transform the field. That's what we're all trying to do is to think about, you know, we have patients dying in our ICUs today and how can we understand their disease process better for the future? Um, I would say, you know, I think it's a hard time in, in ARDS drug discovery right now, um, in part because 
by lumping everyone together, you know, every, if every drug uh, therapy fails, then very quickly pharma loses interest <laughs> in, our, in our disease, right? Even though it's so clinically important, it's like, oh, nothing matters. But, if, but I think biomarkers have the potential, again, really through subphenotyping the disease to, to enter into this whole new world of ARDS research, where you could quickly test 10 things, right, get them turned around in two hours, and then, and then give, it, give your patient a drug target that's ideal for them. And, you know, you and I are in the AII assembly, and I, th I think immunology, you, you see the groundswell of immunologists focusing on COVID now, you know, and, you know, COVID is a type of, you know, the, the people have ARDS. And so could we ask some, you know, similarly deep questions about what's happening with the immunology in those patients, if we could really get everyone working on ARDS in the same way, I really do think it's transformative. And so I, for, for the trainees, I would say these are critical questions that you're asking. And, you know, most things you ask, the answer will be no, that's not, you know, that's not the answer. Negative trial, negative studies are important. But as we ask biomarker questions, I think, you know, really focusing on both is this important in the pathogenesis of my disease? Does this, sub, does this tell me something important about a subset of patients that's different than others that I could target in the future? I think will really help move the field forward over time. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end the podcast, Angela. It's certainly very clinically relevant, um, and, and, it's, and it's what many of us uh, join this field for. So uh, once again, I really want to thank you, uh, Dr. Rogers, for joining us. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. Uh, this episode of the Lung Science Podcast was uh, brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the podcasts, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or any other uh, third party. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.